Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Burrow. At the beginning of this chapter, Harry discovers that Ron, Fred, and George have come to rescue him from the Dursleys in a flying Ford Anglia. They help him sneak his Hogwarts stuff out of the house, and Harry himself is just about to escape through the window when Vernon barges into the room, alerted by Hedwig's screech. Harry just manages to get away, and in the car, he tells the others the story of Dobby's warning and why he was sent an official letter from the Ministry for using magic outside of school. They all speculate on who sent Dobby and why, and suggest Draco Malfoy as a possibility. Harry also learns that not only does Arthur Weasley work with muggle artifacts, he is obsessed with collecting them, hence the enchanted flying car. When they land at the burrow, Molly Weasley screams at her sons for their dangerous stunt, but welcomes Harry inside. They all eat breakfast, and Ginny catches sight of Harry and runs away in embarrassment. Molly commands her kids to denome the garden, which Harry happily joins in on. Arthur Weasley comes home, meeting Harry for the first time, and then receives his own scolding from Molly about the enchanted car. Ron shows Harry his room and begins apologizing for the size and shabbiness of the house, but Harry replies that it's the best he's ever been in. Let's start by talking about the conversation that takes place in the Ford Anglia. So I think one of the really interesting things that they talk about here is the fact that they actually guess correctly that Dobby is the Malfoy's house elf. Right. Although... The way that it's written, you kind of expect that to be wrong mm-hmm. because Harry knows that Dobby was like a really sincere character and Harry's a pretty good judge of character. And so we as the reader tend to believe that Dobby was sent there with really good intentions and wanting to protect Harry. And obviously if Draco Malfoy sent him as a prank, that is not the intention of someone trying to do good. Right. And I also think that it's a good red herring because even though it ends up being true, because it seems like, um, especially in this book, but also in the first book, they start to blame Draco for everything. They're like, well, Draco's evil. He's like our enemy. So it's kind of becomes like a cop out to be like, Mm -hmm. Draco probably did it. And sometimes he does do things, but sometimes they just immediately go to him. So I feel like we're already prepared for it to be like, oh, maybe it's Draco because he's Harry's like school enemy. But, um, As a reader reading this book for the first time, you're probably going to be like, no, it's not Malfoy. Like, they think everything's Malfoy. But then, as we've said, you know, they're actually right that Dobby is the Malfoy's house elf. And that it was Lucius Malfoy who is behind the plot of the events of the book. And so they're very, very close to the truth, except that they're wrong about the why Dobby is there. Mm -hmm. Dobby is there because he's learned about the plot by virtue of being their house elf and that he wants to warn them legitimately. Um, but they think, oh, it's probably someone sent it to you as a prank. You know, they have to follow orders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're very close, but they're just wrong enough that it misleads the reader completely. Yeah. And this whole scenario with Dobby and the warning is so confusing, honestly, throughout the whole book that, um, it's good that we sort of start out getting some speculation because I think that it's really interesting mystery throughout Mm -hmm. this, this book. So once we actually arrive at the borough, there's a lot of things going on, but I think a main theme to point out that we've talked about a lot before, especially in the first book, 
is how um, class in the wizarding world is portrayed and also how Harry is kind of blind to that because he's grown up in the muggle world and also he's just so grateful for kind people mm-hmm. like the Weasleys mm-hmm. that, you know, he he may see the signs of poverty and chaos around, but he's this is his only, A, his only experience with a wizarding house and B, he loves them all so much that, you know, Ron is expecting him as we see at the end, to judge the house and think that it's not good enough because, you know, maybe the Dursleys' house is nicer or cleaner or something. But he's like, no, mm-hmm. I don't care. The Dursleys are terrible. This is a great, comfortable house. Yeah, and recall that Ron has just seen Harry's family's house, the Dursleys' house, um, at the beginning of the chapter and, mm-hmm. and seen his room. So at the end of the chapter, when he's showing Harry his room, he's sort of, I think, embarrassed. He's like, you know, it's not as nice as your bedroom. Sorry that it's like so small and cluttered and everything. And Harry is just like, this is great. And like his bedroom is a prison, basically. Yeah, so exactly. Anything would be better than that, but particularly Ron's because it's so full of life and it's such a home. Right. And I, but it's also important to remember Ron's perspective, not only in this moment, but, you know, throughout the rest of the series and how Harry's kind of blindness to class issues can make him kind but this sort of blindness can be like a real blind spot for harry when he's dealing with ron sometimes where he doesn't um understand how um ron is perceived by other people in the wizarding world Mm -hmm. and also you know how when he'll give him gifts or things he feels like it's like a charity or hand-me-down and so ron's perspective with class in comparison to harry especially is a big theme um and i think even just seeing the Dursley's house, even though he knows it's a horrible place to be, must be another piece to add to the stack of reasons why, you know, Harry or other people are in some ways better off than he is. Mm-hmm. Or that he perceives it that way. Although I'm sure Harry would give anything to trade places with of him. Of course, of course. Yeah. And we can wonder about sort of the wizard economy and how it's possible for such a large family of all wizards that can conjure anything that they want whenever with a few limitations, how could they be poor? You know, I mean, you can think about that. It's like, if there's anything you need, you can just create it out of nothing or transfigure a blade of grass into it or something, you know? Right. You can't make food, but you can make other things. Yeah. So it makes me think that there must be a few things like metals or currency or food. Um, We know that food is an exception to Gamp's law of elemental transfiguration, but there must be a few others like currency. Oh, yeah, definitely. That you can't just multiply or or create out of nothing. And then it must be that there's just very little money in the wizard economy. So people don't need to buy things except for like food and anything else that you can't conjure Mm -hmm. and everything else they just like conjure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's interesting to think about. It is interesting. And it's interesting to think about, you know, what is... What is the government, you know, is there any sort of welfare system in the wizarding world? Oh, I doubt it. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it, but, uh, you know, you would think that, um, I don't know, it is interesting to see, like, what, because we only really see the Weasleys and then some other people, but they're the only kind of poor family that we're mm-hmm. exposed to or told about, and I wonder, you know, if that is common, what the class divides are in general. I think, you know, we it's not a lot, something that we know a lot about. Yeah, I mean, most of the wizards we meet are one of the two extremes, are either people like the Weasleys or they're very old wizarding families that have a lot of money. Right. So there's not a lot of go-between. Of course, you have people like Harry and Hermione who are total outsiders, and they can change muggle currency for wizard currency. Mm-hmm. So one wonders about 
the exchange rate mm-hmm. and whether your average muggle would be very wealthy as a wizard. Um, yeah, but right. Interesting. If if the exchange rate holds up the way I think it does, um, then you know your average person would probably have like the equivalent of tons of money in the wizard society mm-hmm. because we're very currency focused. But I'd imagine that wizards who can conjure anything that they want all the time don't really need to spend much. Mm-hmm. So we learn a lot about the Weasleys in this chapter, which is great. Yeah, one of our favorite families. I'm sure most people's favorite family in the wizarding world. So we'll start with Fred and George. We learn a lot about them. They're pretty minor characters in the first book. Mm-hmm. And this is really the first chapter where we have a, a closer look at them. Um, we find out that they're very resourceful and clever. And they know a lot of like tricks of the trade. We think of them as like jokesters mostly in the first book. But here we see that that sort of clownishness has a much more practical side to it. That they've learned a lot of tricks like how to pick locks and how to plan and escape. Yeah, and maybe also from their dad in terms of like learning muggle tricks, you know, maybe mm-hmm. he's taught them in combination with their, right, their smarts and ability to want to sneak around and figure things out that other wizards don't know. Mm-hmm. So that's how Harry um, does the escape is they end up picking the lock to the front door, going down, getting his trunk, picking the lock to the cupboard under the stairs to get his trunk, and then Harry... Brings the rest of the stuff out the window. Right. So at the end of last episode, we were wondering how are the Weasleys going to get Harry out of this situation without using magic because it would be illegal for them to use magic. And that's our answer yeah. is that Fred and George bring their smarts and their practicality and they know all of these tricks like how to pick a lock with a hairpin. Yeah. So this is the first time that we're seeing them as, right, you said, like more than just jokers and it a little bit, not really foreshadows, but it begins to characterize them as, you know, people that could be very shrewd you know the businessmen that they become Mm -hmm. it also foreshadows their resourcefulness during the second wizarding war as um radio broadcasters and as people who make like defense equipment right which is based on a lot of muggle um like decoys and defense elements but with a magical twist Mm -hmm. or things like you know shield hats shield gloves i mean those remind a lot of people of like bulletproof vests Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know things like that where it's like okay they're taking you know, muggle tools and basically creating magical applications for them. So Molly is actually the first Weasley character that we really meet in the whole series or that we even see Mm -hmm. in the whole series. And so we already know a lot about her, you know, motherly, caring, and also fierce personality. But here it's really the beginning of what the stereotypical Molly is throughout the rest of the series where she's, you know, loving everyone and also screaming at them for doing anything dangerous and her love of harry here is also really evident i mean she does treat him like a son and so he actually when he actually becomes her son in the future by marrying Ginny, that must have been you know an amazing day for all of them because harry really is a part of the family as he always has been from this day forward basically yeah and even from the first time they met it was clear that she was acting motherly towards him Mm -hmm. You know, she saw this orphan who didn't have any parents, such a tragic figure. And she was like, someone needs to take care of him and it might as well be me. Yeah. And I think that she was also really incredible in that moment and just going forward because she's not like awed by him as, you know, this famous character. She's like, this is a little boy and everybody needs to calm down. Mm -hmm. I need to take care of him. And she just treats him as the person that he is instead of people going up to him as, you know, 11, 12-year-old saying, like, you're a celebrity when 
she sees him yeah. for like what he actually is and i think she even says like oh he was so like sweet and polite you know yeah like she doesn't see him as this like crazy heroic figure she yeah. sees him as an 11 year old kid and she sees i think a lot of you know the trauma that he's gone through and can really has that caring towards him and knows that mm -hmm. he needs the nurturing but you're right, it's the first time we really see her fury come out in force this mm -hmm. chapter when she's yelling at her sons for basically doing something really dangerous and yeah. could have gotten themselves in a lot of trouble or killed or seen or whatever. Um, and that's going to keep coming up over and <laughs> yeah. over. Arthur is another character that we get to see for the first time this chapter. Yeah, I forgot about that. It's the first time that we and Harry meet him. Yeah, and he's just, I love Arthur so much. Mm -hmm. He's such a dad. He's like a tinkerer at heart. He's like a lot of dads I know where they just love tinkering with things and finding out how they work and putting them back together, except that he is a wizard. So he takes things apart, puts spells on them, and then puts them back together to <laughs> see if they work as magical artifacts. Right. And luckily, or maybe not luckily, maybe this is intentional by him, he works in the misuse of muggle artifacts office at the ministry. And right. so he's the guy in charge of prosecuting people who misuse muggle artifacts. And so then he can, I mean, she says at one, Molly says to him at one point, you wrote that loophole in the law. Right. Where as long as he didn't intend for them to be used, yeah. then it was okay that they were magical. Um, of course, does not extend to his flying car, which was then flown to Surrey and back by his sons. Uh, and, but, but even upon hearing that the flying car was used by his sons, his first reaction is not, oh no, we're going to be in trouble. It was, did it go all right? <laughs> So he is, uh, he's very funny and he clearly loves his sons, but he also loves his tinkering he with does. muggle things. And he's fascinated by Harry and Hermione and other people who come from the muggle world and have all of this experience. There's a great line in the second film, probably the funniest line in the movie, where he very seriously asks Harry, what exactly is the function of a rubber duck upon meeting Harry for the first time? Yeah. And then we encounter Ginny, um, brief, very briefly, um, who seems very shy and overly nervous, um, which we know from the whole series that she probably has a crush on Harry at this point and is surprised to find him at her breakfast table. And, <laughs> you know, when they walk by her room on the stairs, she looks away and is embarrassed. So we don't get a very nuanced uh, version of her character at this point. But I think the way that Rowling actually writes her character, it it seems like she's just going to be this kind of a little bit of a throwaway silly character at the beginning. But then she has a very uh, deep character arc, which goes through a lot in this book as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, they become friends and they later actually fall in love. But their whole love story is not, you know, the typical romance that you see in series. They both have a lot of character development mm -hmm and back and forth that I think is more interesting. Particularly this kind of schoolgirl crush we wouldn't imagine would develop into anything normally. Right, right. But because of the very nuanced way, as you were saying, that Rowling develops these characters, they go through very, very long and drawn-out arcs where for a couple of years she has this really big crush on him and he saves her life and he's this big hero to her. And then she kind of settles into a friendship with him and they're sort of, you know, when she's in the DA, especially, she kind of comes to terms with the fact that he's got a crush on Cho. Mm -hmm. And then he and Cho briefly date and she's okay with that. And she dates other people and then culminates basically on 
both of them being mature enough to understand that they do have feelings for each other and then deciding to try to make that work. Right. And they both have come into their own, you know, in the resistance basically at that point as well. So they're both, they're both fighting for something and then they're fighting for each other as well at the yeah. end. And we'll develop that a lot more as we get into those later books. But it's just interesting to think about how far that goes mm-hmm. and how different that relationship is than than just this microcosm right here mm-hmm. where it's just a, a very shy little girl having a crush on a little boy you know they're so different than the way they turn out yeah and i want to be really uh, mindful of jenny this whole book because i think that mm-hmm. he, this book is bas- basically her book although she doesn't get um she doesn't get a lot of screen she time. doesn't get a lot of screen time but this is about her and i think you really need to be um focused on her throughout this book and so Mm -hmm. this is our first instance that we see her before um she's involved with anything related to the diary um however this is only you know days or weeks before she is going to encounter the diary so i think this is kind of a, a little bit of a sad eerie moment after having read the book seeing you know she is so innocent and just shy and embarrassed and also vulnerable and a good target for this diary at this point mm-hmm. and we'll talk about more about why she's a good target for the diary next chapter so we've discussed some foreshadowing already around Ginny and her relationship with harry and her relationship with the diary in this book um, but there's a couple other characters who are just mentioned briefly in this chapter who also have their own foreshadowing moments i want to briefly touch on mundungus fletcher who's mentioned as a throwaway character by Arthur as someone who tried to jinx him while his back was turned. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like jinxing someone when their back is turned as we hear Crouch slash Moody say in Goblet of Fire is a dastardly scummy thing to do. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, that's exactly the kind of character that Dung is. He's a back alley criminal who will do anything to make a buck. And will save his own skin. So another character who's only briefly mentioned is Percy Weasley. But I think that it's interesting to talk about him because there's all this secrecy built up around Percy in this book. People saying he's acting weird, he's spending a lot of time alone. It seems like sinister, like it might lead up to something in this book, but really it's just that he has a girlfriend and he's being awkward about it and not telling his family. However, this like isolation and sort of secret keeping from the family and just in general separation from the Weasleys foreshadowed for me his later his later betrayal of them after Goblet of Fire and um, just his true separation from mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. at that point. And yeah, Percy's another character that I think is more interesting than I used to think. And I, and yeah. he really is having this um, separation already. So he, he and Ginny are both sort of separate from the family, but in different ways at this point. Yeah, and... It's really interesting to think about this from the perspective of people who've read the books completely now, knowing everything that he does and goes through. He is already set apart by the Weasleys. He's already shunned by everybody because Mm -hmm. he's so, like, goody-two-shoes, rule-abiding, ambitious, you know, um, among all these other Gryffindors who love breaking the rules when it suits them and love mayhem and mischief, especially Fred and George. But even to some extent, Bill and Charlie, who in different ways, shun normativity and go about their business in very odd ways. Bill with his like earring and long hair and his cool job as a curse breaker. Charlie with his like job chasing dragons in Romania. You know, these are not like typical 
normal wizards, whereas Percy seems like the type of wizard to become an accountant. Yeah. You know, and I think in this family of like adventurers and rule breakers, Percy stands out and he doesn't really fit in. And this book really is the beginning of the reader understanding that Percy is being set apart from everyone else. So next we have to talk about your boy, Gilderoy Lockhart, (laughs) who is probably the main comedic villain of this book besides Voldemort. Uh, he comes up in this chapter for the first time, and I think it's actually sort of a perfect microcosm for his entire character just shown in this chapter, although it's very subtle. And it's not something that I ever noticed until this read-through, very carefully noticing that right towards the end of the chapter, after the garden has Mm -hmm. been denomed, the gnomes return to their gnome hole. So we see it has not worked. It has not worked, but so, so... his guide to household pets clearly describes this as the way to denome is that you swing them around your head until they get dizzy and then you fling them as far as you can so that they can't find their way back. And this is just like all of his magic. It's flashy. It sounds plausible. It gives you a good sense of accomplishment while you're doing it and ultimately does nothing of importance. So mm-hmm. it totally fails. The gnomes find their way back within a day and nothing has changed when they wake up the next morning. The gnomes are all back there. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. I do remember that scene of them all coming back, but I didn't really connect it to the fact that it's probably because Lockhart is making that up, and that does not, right. that's not how you right. denome a garden. And it's just funny to think about how many you know people he has enchanted and fooled yeah. by with all these silly Even Molly tricks. Weasley, you know, who's like the ultimate mom, and you'd think that she would know everything about how to denome a garden just from, you know, generations and generations of people passing it down to her. You know, it's it sounds like one of those things that would be like motherly wisdom, you know. But in fact, she believes all of his stories and that he is marvelous and that he really knows everything about gnoming. So, right. so um, even she is like, this is the right way to do it because he says it's the right way to do it. And clearly it doesn't work at all. Yeah, it's, it's funny that this is such a subtle wink by Rowling about... Lockhart's magic and this isn't something that I think that Harry or Ron ever think about later on when they actually encounter Lockhart but maybe at some point they go you know what we should have known when the gnomes came back but I think even well and we'll get to this when we get to next chapter but even on their first time meeting him there's the two of them have a sense that this is not someone they should trust right for sure for sure and even just like looking at the book cover and hearing Fred mutter that Molly fancies him, mm-hmm. you know, and and seeing her get embarrassed. It's like, this is a guy who's charmed his way into society and into fame. And I think maybe the last thing we should talk about in this chapter is the burrow itself, because it means so much to Harry, and it becomes really his home away from home outside of Hogwarts. And I think there's a lot to say about why that is and why Harry immediately becomes so comfortable here. Yeah. Yeah, and when I thought about that sort of phrase, that it's his home away from home, I thought, you know, just personally thinking about it, there's so much vastness and scary things that are in Hogwarts, even though Harry is so comfortable there, um, that I feel like the burrow is actually just, you know, a cozy burrow where everyone can snuggle up like little weasels. Little, little bunnies. Little bunnies. And, you know, it's just very comfortable. And there's obviously family there that really becomes his family. So I think that is a major reason, but there's also a lot of other exciting things about it. Yeah. And it definitely feels safe to him in a way that maybe Hogwarts doesn't really, mm-hmm. because there is so much danger there, as you said. 
But really, I think it's it's the fact that it's the opposite of everything Privet Drive and everything Dursley's. Yeah. You know, where the Dursley's house is clean and pristine and identical to every other house on the street, the burrow is completely unique and it's dirty and it's messy and it's cluttered. There are chickens wandering around the yard, the gardens infested with gnomes, and the whole house looks like it was slapped together so shoddily that it would fall apart at any minute if it weren't for the magic holding it together. You know, the kitchen is full of smells and sounds and funky gadgets and decorations and contraptions. The rooms, the bedrooms are cluttered and messy and they have comic book piles all over the place and there's a ghoul in the attic. You know, it's just full of life and it's a home, really, in a way that Privet Drive never felt like a home to Harry. It's it's also full of people that love him and that genuinely want him to be happy, which is something he's never experienced before at any other house. Yeah, and he's welcomed in, even though he, you know, although it's he wasn't wasn't his idea to get the car, you know, he's a part of this sort of escape plot, but he's immediately, you know, not scolded himself and welcomed in, given breakfast, given a place to sleep, given inclusion in this fun denoming activity mm-hmm. and he is just yeah welcomed with open arms into this family however the burrow as i read this chapter i had all this you know sense of how integral the burrow is as a setting throughout the entire series so it's not only a place that we come back to you know time and time again for christmas or other you know fun holidays or times but it's also where some pretty big events happen. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, one is when in the seventh book, there's a lot in the seventh book where Scrimgeour arrives to give the trio gifts from Dumbledore right. um, from his will. Um, there's also, you know, Bill's wedding turned Death Eater disaster. And around the same time is, you know, Harry attempts to leave the burrow at night and leave Ron and Hermione to go off on his own in the seventh book. So, there's a lot of those. Earlier on, they spend a summer there and they leave from the borough to go to the Quidditch World Cup, where, of course, everything begins. So um, it's just a really big setting for a lot of small and large plot points. However, it's nice to have this first chapter where we're introduced to the borough and the Weasleys, and this is really one of Harry's happiest times happiest chapters hate to end it on a depressing note (laughs) yeah it really is a delightful chapter it's so happy it's one of the few chapters in the series that involves no drama just harry having a really good time so that's it for now thank you so much for listening to harry podcast in the borough we hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter and feel free to email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com with any questions or comments you have. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we continue our discussion with Chapter 4 at Flourish and Blots. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox. Knox. <laughs>